Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, Minister and Chaplain JG Ministries, and we are studying the book of Luke. If you have your Bible, turn to chapter 14, verse 15, and let's get into it. Now, last time, we began chapter 14 by seeing Jesus healing a man with dropsy on the Sabbath and the importance of being humble. So now let's continue with the parable of the great banquet. And Jesus continues the figure of the banquet with a striking parable about the feast in the kingdom of God, the so-called eschatological banquet. So turn with me to our scripture and let's begin with verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper, invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those, to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to be excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. <clears throat> now taking a look at verses 15 to 20 here. The concept of future celebration in the kingdom is certainly biblical. Jesus addressed the presumption by some present, perhaps including the speaker that we see in, back in verse 1, that they would inevitably participate. The invited guests were waiting either for the second invitation, which was customary in fashion circles, or else they were being reminded that it was time to come. The striking thing is that all of them declined. Now, their excuses are weak. One man, one man must go to see a purchased field he probably has seen before. Contrast his urgent attention to material things with Jesus' healing a man on the Sabbath that we saw back in verses 2, verses two, 3, and 4. The second excuse is as worthless as the first one. Would anyone have bought oxen without examining them first? In both of these instances, materialism got in the way of honoring an invitation already extended and presumably accepted. The third excuse has more validity in the light of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. Also, only men were invited to banquets, yet marriage was not, especially in that society, an abrupt decision. And it could hardly have been an unexpected factor that had intervened between the first and the second invitations. Now, with his superb narrative art, Jesus used these three excuses to show that just as a host may be snubbed, so God's gracious invitation 
may be flouted. One of the guests who reclined with Jesus at the meal remarked how wonderful it would be to participate in the blessings of the kingdom of God. Perhaps he was impressed by the principles of conduct which Jesus had just taught. Or perhaps it was just a general remark which he made without too much thought. But at any rate, the Lord replied that wonderful as it may be to eat bread in the kingdom of God. The sad fact is that many of those who are invited make all kinds of foolish excuses for their failure to accept that invitation. He pictured God as a certain man who gave a great supper and invited many guests. When the meal was ready, he asked his servant to notify the invited guests that everyone was now ready. Now this reminds us of the great fact that the Lord Jesus finished the work of redemption on Calvary, and the gospel invitation goes out on the basis of that completed work. One person who had been invited excused himself because he had bought a field and he wanted to go see it. Normally, he would have gone and seen it before he even purchased it. But even then, he was putting the love of material things ahead of his gracious invitation. The next one who had bought five oak of oxen and was going to test them. He pictures those who put jobs and occupations or businesses ahead of the call of God. The third one said he had married a wife and therefore he couldn't come. Family ties and social relationships often hinder men from accepting the gospel invitation. As we move on to verses 21 to 24, when the servant notified the master that the invitation was being rejected right and left, the master sent him out to the city to invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Both nature and grace abhor, abhor a vacuum. Perhaps the first ones invited picture the leaders of the Jewish people. When they rejected the gospel, God sent it out to the common people of the city of Jerusalem. Many of these responded to the call, but there was room in the master's house. And so the master said to the servant to go out into the highways and the byways and compel people to come in. Now this doubtless pictures the gospel going out to the Gentile people. They were not to be compelled by force of arms that had been done in the history of Christianity, but rather by force of argument. Loving persuasion was to be used in an effort to bring them in so that the master's house might be filled. The host became angry because the region's personal insult to him. The streets were those traveled by a wide variety of people, whereas the alleys were small lanes or side paths that were likely to harbor the loitering outcasts of society. Those brought from these places were precisely the same unfortunates Jesus had told his host to invite back in verse 13. With room still available, the servant is to go outside the town and search even the country lanes. To make them come in is not compulsion, but insistent hospitality. And although Jesus does not interpret the parable, we may link it with chapter 13, 
verses 28 to 30 and find it an illusion of the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles. Those who had the benefit of the original invitation are the Jews with all their heritage and special advantages. Not one refers to the parable and stresses the seriousness of the consequences of rejecting God's invitation. Thus, the original guest list was no longer useful when the meal was held because those who were originally invited didn't come. And move on to verse 25, leaving all to follow Christ. The cost of being a disciple its the cost of true discipleship. So let's turn back to our scriptures, to verse 25. As it begins, now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, also I'll be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not set down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not set down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And let's quickly just read verses 34 and 35 to finish this. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So looking at verse 25, the serious tone of the preceding parable continues as it now turns those who profess allegiance to Jesus. And Luke again points out Jesus' popularity and his continuing journey towards Jerusalem. Now great multitudes followed Jesus. Most leaders would be elated by such widespread interest, but the Lord was not looking for people who would follow him out of curiosity with no real heart interest. He was looking for those who were willing to live devotedly, to live passionately for him, and even to find him necessary. And so now... He began to sift the crowd by presenting to them the stringent terms of discipleship. At times, Jesus wooed men to himself, but after they began to follow him, he winnowed them. That is what is taking place here. And first of all, in verse 26, he told those who followed him that in order to be true disciples, they must love him supremely. Hate is not an absolute but a relative term. To neglect social customs pertaining to family loyalties would probably have been interpreted as Jesus is not contravening the commandment to honor one's father and mother. It is important to understand the ancient Near Eastern expression without blunting its force. 
He did not ever suggest that men should have bitter hatred in their hearts towards father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Rather, he was emphasizing that love for Christ must be so great that all other loves are hatred in comparison. No consideration of family must ever be allowed to deflect a disciple from a way of full obedience to the Lord. Actually, the most difficult part of this first term of discipleship is found in the words, and his own life also. It is not only that we must love our relatives less, we must hate our own lives also. Instead of living self-centered lives, we must live Christ-centered lives. Instead of asking how every action will affect ourselves, we must be careful to assess, to assess how it will affect Christ and his glory. Considerations of personal comfort and safety must be subordinate to the great task of glorifying Christ and making him known. The Savior's words are absolute. He said that if we did not love him supremely, more than our family and more than our own lives, we could not be his disciples. There is no halfway measure to this. And secondly, in verse 27, he taught that a true disciple must bear his own cross and follow him. The cross is not some physical infirmity or mental anguish, but it is a pathway of reproach, suffering, loneliness, and even death, which a person voluntarily chooses for Christ's sake. Not all believers bear the cross. It is possible to avoid it by living a nominal Christian life, but if we determine to be all out for Christ, we will experience the same kind of satanic opposition which the Son of God knew when he was here on the earth. This is the cross. The disciple must come after Christ. This means that he must live the type of life which Christ lived when he was here on earth, a life of self-renunciation, a life of humiliation, persecution, a life of reproach, temptation, and even contradiction of sinners against himself. And then in verses 28 to 32, then the Lord Jesus used two illustrations to emphasize the necessity of counting the cost before setting out to follow him. He likened the Christian life to building a, to a building project and then to warfare. A man intending to build a tower sits down first and he counts the cost. If he doesn't have enough to finish, he doesn't proceed. Otherwise, when the foundation is laid, the work must stop. The onlookers begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish it. So it is with disciples. They should first count the cost, whether they really mean to abandon their lives wholeheartedly to Christ. Otherwise, they might start off in a blaze of glory and then fizzle out. If so, the onlookers will mock them for beginning well and ending ingloriously. The world has nothing but contempt for half-hearted Christians. And let me end here with this section for this time with a side note. Now, this seems to have been Jesus' first return to Nazareth since his baptism more than before. And as far as we know, he spent the intervening time in the desert in Cana, in Capernaum, and even in Judea. The people marveled at his gracious, magnetic, and evidently powerful personality in speaking. They were amazed 
they could hardly believe that this was the boy that they had watched grow up. Even in that small town, Jesus had lived such a quiet life and was from such a lowly family that the people in the synagogue scarcely recognized him. The point of his reference to Elijah and Elisha is that they had been sent to Gentiles, not to Israelites, a hint of his own mission. This, as well as the miracles he performed in towns other than his own, so offended their narrow provincialism that they flew into a frenzy and attempted to kill him. Jesus uses two different circumstances to illustrate his basic point. Discipleship requires a conscious, advanced commitment made with a realistic estimate of the ultimate personal cost. The practical nature of the circumstances Jesus so vividly pictures underlines the fact that Christian discipleship is not some theoretical abstract ideal, but it's hard reality. And lastly, a king going to make war against forces that are numerically superior must consider carefully whether his smaller force has the capacity to defeat the bigger army. He realizes full well that it is either absolute committal or surrender. And so it is in the Christian life of discipleship. There can be no halfway measures. Some food for thought. And until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.